Ready? Yep. Let's go. Healthy, healthy rainbow. Beautiful fish. <laughs> you dropped him, dude. <laughs> On the squall, baby. On the squall. I got it, too. Right there? I got it, I got it too. Oh. He barely puts him in the net. Oh, my God. Uh, sick, sick, sick. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton, and this is... I'm Kyle. But first, a word from our partners. Up first, we want to talk about Heather's Choice. If you use the code the Young Guides 15 at checkout, you can save yourself 15% off at heatherschoice.com. Check out Matt from Alaska Rod Co. Selling some of the best rods in Alaska and in the United States. Make sure to go to check out his website, alaskarodco.com. You can also head on over to Lucky Bug Lures and get 15% off when you use the code the Young Guides 15. Check out MJ Outdoor Gear, selling quality backcountry hunting gear. Go to www.mjoutdoorgear.ca and use the Young Guides 15 on any purchase over $50 and save 15%. Also, head on over to Northern Knits. You can get yourself a nice hat for the upcoming winter. Up here in Alaska, it's still summer, but winter's just around the corner. Make sure to get your order in and get you a hat for the wintertime. Also check out our partner, NWTF South Sound Strutters, to help with turkey conservation in Washington State. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton, and this is... I'm Kyle. And today we have a special guest, a kokanee biologist from the Lake Sammamish Basin, uh, well, Lake Washington Basin, um, and we are very excited to hear about his upbringing and kind of what's happening with that kokanee project um, going on in that urban watershed. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Keaton and Kyle. Thanks for having me on and pretty excited to talk about the project. Yeah, absolutely. You sure? Yeah, we're excited to, excited to learn more. Um, to get started, Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, um, where you grew up, um, how you got into the outdoors? Yeah. Um, so I'm a Californian, so I'll pre-apologize to all you Washingtonians who, uh, uh, don't like us anyway, but, uh, I grew up in, uh, California. Um, I was born in Fresno and, uh, actually caught my first fish with my dad probably when I was about five years old. It was a rainbow trout on Dinky Creek. It was the first fish I ever caught. And, uh, from there, we moved up to Sacramento, and uh, it was really a great place to grow up when I was there. Um, it was uh, less developed than it is now, and uh, my parents gave me a lot of freedom. So uh, I was kind of a latchkey kid. You know, both of them worked full time. Um, I took myself to middle school on my bike or my rollerblades or whatever I wanted to do. Um, and uh, really, I just had to be home by the time the, the streetlights came on. Uh, my street was a quarter mile long cul-de-sac and we lived at the deepest part of it and me and the other kids just ran over you know nobody's yard was safe we climbed everybody's <laughs> tree um, went in everybody's backyard it was just a, a fun fun place to grow up and uh, uh, my dad took me fishing a little bit but um, he didn't do really any hunting um, 
And it wasn't until high school when I made some new friends that uh, we started getting into fishing, largemouth bass, steelhead, uh, that kind of thing on the uh, uh, Sacramento River and the American River. Um, and uh, that kind of inspired me. In high school, uh, my senior English class, um, they told us to find a subject or project, volunteer somewhere, and uh, uh, basically be a volunteer for three to six months and then write, you know, a piece about it, summarizing our experience. And so uh, I chose to... Uh, go volunteer for the Nimbus fish hatchery located in Rancho Cordova there on the American river. And, uh, uh, I basically went to the hatchery manager and said, Hey, I want to volunteer for you. This is the project. You know, can I do this? And he of course said, sure, we'd love to have you. And so, uh, I started working there and, you know, the duties included, uh, the grind through the summer of, raceways and troughs and uh, maintenance uh, but it got a lot more fun in the fall when the chinooks started coming back and then the steelhead where i got to uh, start helping with the uh, spawning so um, we did that for uh, that six months and then when i got out of school um, the hatchery manager appreciated what i did and so i wasn't you know some derelict and so he asked me if I wanted to come be a seasonal aide uh, for the hatchery. And uh, I, of course, said, yeah, this job rules. And then that actually timed out pretty well with uh, my Alaska, because the seasonal aide is a nine-month job. And then the Alaska job was the rest of the year. So uh, I got the summers off to go to Alaska and then, you know, got to go back to the hatchery and, uh make fish yeah um so what what took you up to alaska so in high school my parents gave me a choice of to uh you know when you when you graduate high school uh, there's usually a big senior trip and uh they gave me the choice to go down to cabo with the rest of my peers or uh you know i could go up to alaska for a fishing adventure and uh I chose the fishing adventure. And so I actually uh, went to the sportsman show there in Sacramento and talked to a number of people. And I found a guide service in Bristol Bay. And then we had some family connections with some uh, uh, guides that worked off of the uh, Kenai and the Kisilov and the Nilchek and Homer. And so we signed up with all those, with, including Bristol Bay. And so I uh, went up there actually with my mom because <laughs> it was her, her family friends. And uh, we did the, the Kenai and the Kasilov, which I caught a bunch of fish on. It's totally rad. Um, down to uh, Nanilchek, caught some halibut down there and then broke off from my mom. And I flew over to uh, Dillingham, Alaska. And that is a small town. Just a small little native town, big fishing area, um, and uh, actually flew out to our the camp that I was going to be on, which was on the Nushigak River, mm -hmm. and uh, they flew me out on a Grumman's Goose. It was a 1942 Grumman's Goose, 
amphibious <laughs> plane lands right on the river. We'll do over a hundred on the river. Wow. Um, and uh, they delivered me to camp and uh, it was like a tent camp on the river and in that section of the river the uh, the native corporation owns most of the uh, land and so they lease uh, these camp spots to these guide services so nobody has any permanent fixtures it's all portable everything's got to be packed in and out um, and so I started fishing there and uh my boss had hired two derelicts, you know, can be pretty slim pickings when you're hiring like, you know, guides or camp help. And, you know, they're And as a client, I was helping my boss more than the guys that he had hired. <laughs> so he, he offered me a job there. He, I told him I'd, I'd be, I'll be back next year. Let me, let me do my job. Um, and I'll come work for you, whatever, whatever I need to get done. There's a lot of paperwork, guide, guide paperwork, classes you got to take uh, to be able to be a guide. So, you know, said I'd be back. And so I was, and I did it for six years. Nice. And each time I went, the trip got progressively longer. <laughs> yeah. So. When you, uh, were you a, a camp hand before you became a guide or did he just start you off guiding right away? Both. Both. So the staff was really small. Um, and uh, at times I was the cook. I was the, you know, campaign. I was a guide. So <laughs> it was a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I kind of knew how to operate boats. Uh, we did mostly back trolling with plugs and some bait work. Uh, and there was a lot of fish. So, it wasn't terribly hard, you know. Just look for all the other boats, back trolling, get in line, back it down, That's and you awesome. get your fish, peel off, you know, land the fish, and go get back in line. Um, but yeah, it's a tremendous, tremendous experience, really. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I did end up transferring out of the hatchery because I decided uh, I wanted to go into fisheries and. Uh, the school that I ended up getting into was Humboldt State, so it's in the north tip of uh, northwest tip of uh, California, right on the ocean. Great place to go to college. Um, you could jump on a boat and be out in the ocean salmon fishing in 20 minutes, or go 30 minutes up the hill and you were deer hunting and uh, duck hunting all through the valley. Uh, just a just a great place uh, and make a lot of friends. Yeah. And uh, from there, um, I ended up getting a job uh, in Mendocino. It's just a little south of uh, Humboldt and uh, worked at a industrial timber farm that managed uh, redwood and dug fir. And I did uh, fisheries work and um, wildlife, mainly hooting owls and hydrology. And uh, they ended up selling the tree farm about six, six years ago. And then we moved here, up here. Uh, the timber farm bought the uh, Snoqualmie uh, forest, uh, Campbell Global, and uh, we moved up here and I found the current job that I have with Trout Unlimited, which is uh, as a project manager working on Lake Sammamish Kokanee restoration, but I'm happy to say that program is expanding and I am now the um, Lake Washington Basin Program Manager for Trout Unlimited. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. <clears throat> 
can we uh let's go back i, I just kind of want to hear about because i've never this is new to me too is i want to kind of hear about your guiding like how was your guide experience in alaska and and like did you start out fishing and then was it kind of just like the guy was like hey you want to also hunt to be a hunting guide or did you offer to be a hunting guide how how did that all play out uh so yeah first it was you know i i didn't really know anything about guiding when i first started um went up there and he's like you just drive the boat it's like okay uh we were mainly back trolling plugs and uh you know it's it's a lot of uh service work so you're taking care of clients um we didn't have a lot of staff it was on the river um and so my days started before they ever woke up getting everything ready um and my day ended well after they all went to bed uh, which was very late because of the uh, extended sunlight that we have up there um, but it was just learning through experience really um, get some tips from the boss but you know it, there was a lot of fish there too so it wasn't terribly hard yeah. and after my first year and my my boss <laughs> figured out that uh, you know I wasn't a complete you know fuck up um, it's like <laughs> well you want to come to hunting camp which was a different place it was uh, much higher up in the watershed and uh it's like, yeah, that'd be amazing. So went up there to pack the first year, um, pack animals out. And then uh, after that, I just started guiding. But again, not not terribly hard. I mean, we were blessed with an abundance of animals. So caribou uh, hunting, really, you, you climbed up to the tallest peak you could find, um, glass and glass and glass and glass. And then if you saw the herd moving, um, you know, you'd run down the hill jump with the jet boat and try and cut them off because uh, you're certainly not going to chase them you can't outrun a caribou you're on losing ground the whole way um, and then uh, like moose hunting was, uh, was a lot of pre-work so we'd go scout for a week the um, non-resident season was only 10 days so we usually only took a couple clients and uh, you know had mixed results but they're huge I don't know if you guys have ever seen a Yukon moose it's giant yeah. it's a monster and once you once you put one down they usually die in the worst places in the slough and the, you know the bugs just pop as soon as they go down and now you got to figure out what you're doing with this monster how do you get it to a place where you can break it down skin it and get it back to the boat and get it back to camp so wow that's crazy did you ever get an opportunity did they let you go hunt at all or or are you just mostly working? Uh, I got into some caribou, but uh, never really got into moose. I mean, it was such a short season uh, with only 10 days that we had to focus on the clients. Um, you know, bear hunting too was, uh, it was a very short season too. And uh, that took a lot of work too. Yeah. You can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh, you guys are young, so um, and probably have very little responsibilities as far as children and mortgages and um, you know wives and things. But uh, if you have the opportunity uh, to guide, I'll give you. Uh, I would say do it for sure. Take the opportunity. You will see places that people pay, you know, fortunes to go visit, and you're getting paid to be there. Um, and then the other thing I would suggest is that if you do go guiding, make sure you get a written contract from whoever you work for. Um, there's a lot of uh, fraud that happens, wage shortages. Um, and so you want to make sure that, 
that you'll be paid for your work. Yeah. Some great info that uh, you wouldn't know unless you actually talk to somebody who's uh, been there and done that. Yeah. yeah they're not all sketchy either. Uh, there's a lot of good, good bosses and good guides out there. But, uh, you know, if you're a young guy, you, you can be very trusting. And so um, it's, you know, a professional will write you an employment contract. So. So what, uh, when you, what brought you, I guess, to, to Washington? I mean, after, um, I apologize if I missed that earlier, but when you were in California and then you came mm -hmm. up to Washington, what was, what was that draw for you? Uh, so really it was a, a loss of employment. So, um, my, uh, wife at the time and I both worked for the same timber farm, Campbell global. And, uh, that was at the tree farm that I uh, mentioned earlier and they had changed ownership. So somebody bought them out and cut the staff in half basically. And we didn't make the cut. Um, uh, and so the town that we lived in, um, it's pretty small, um, you know, 6,000 people, mostly recreation, not a lot of job opportunities. And uh, the company that we had worked for bought this Nequamie, uh forest, you know, just behind North Bend. And uh, they offered uh, my wife at the time uh, a job, basically, and some benefits to move up here. And uh, the there was a lot more opportunity for me. I didn't know about this job that I have now when we moved, but um, coming from a, a 6,000 person town to you know this metropolis, uh, there is a lot more work opportunity. So we took the stab, uh, agreed to try it for a couple of years, see if it worked out. And uh, uh, we ended up not working out, so. So, um... What were when you came up here? Where did you start working in um, in your field? Like, were you working at that that new uh, kind of doing the same thing? Or uh, so the timber job was uh, it was a lot of different jobs all in one. Um, you know, doing wildlife work, hooting owls, doing uh, fisheries work uh, associated with harvest plans, doing hydrology work. Uh, I was also the uh, you know, security liaison. We had a lot of gorilla marijuana grows and uh, trespass issues. So I worked with the security team. Uh, I was the fleet manager for the company. Uh, I wore a lot of different hats. Um, uh, but when we moved up here, I actually got to spend about three months with my six-month-old daughter. So my daughter, Juniper, was uh, about six months when we moved up here and I got to stay home with her for about three months, which was amazing. Three, four months. And, uh, I had actually worked not for trout unlimited, but with trout unlimited down in California, they have a, an awesome, um, uh, coho team, basically the North coast coho team. And they have been doing just amazing, uh, uh, crossing replacement and large wood, uh, implementation, and uh, I was working on the timber company side of those projects. So it's pretty, pretty cool to see what we could do, especially when we own the entire watershed out to the ocean. So we didn't have to worry about, you know, somebody's bridge or power line or whatever. Um, I would go take fallers out and have them dump 
200 foot redwoods into the creek with chainsaws and there was no no issue yeah that's awesome that's crazy hey let me ask what is a what's an owl hooter when i was working for the timber company in california um, they had northern spotted owl on the property and northern spotted owl um, were in decline they're a big hot topic issue bunch of loggers were pretty upset because uh, their presence was shutting down their logging jobs. Um, but in order to operate and harvest timber, uh, the timber companies had to prove that they weren't, you know, negatively impacting these endangered species. And so part of my job for that timber company was to go hooting. <laughs> and hooting really, it, it had kind of a di couple different forks. One was that you had to see if spotted owls had taken up residency in one of your proposed harvest plants. So you'd laid out these, these polygons of timber harvest. And so you would rip around on a quad in the middle of the night, either vocally or with an electric call box um, all around this plant. So you're talking, you know, 20 miles a night, yeah, full speed, pitch black, is ripping um, to see if any any birds were in the uh, the harvest plant. That was one. Part. The other part was is we knew where uh, all the traditional breeding areas were. They didn't move very much. They're kind of in the, this core area. Mm -hmm. And so one of the the other thing we had to determine is if uh, the breeding centers were active. Was there a male and female present? And did they breed? And so um, you'd go in and hoot, and usually an owl would fly up. And this was done uh, more like evening time, but not in the pitch black. And because you had to chase the owls. So you would start hooting, they kind of fly up to you because they've been fed for 20 years. And uh, you would offer them a mouse from the uh, you know pet store. And they would swoop down and grab that mouse and either fly up to a tree and eat it or they would like take off and you had to chase them because you couldn't lose sight of them. Yeah. So what you were trying to determine is if they had bread and where their nest was. So if you lose them for too long, you're like, oh man, I got to find this goddamn son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> and yeah. then you're cursing at them. And then 10 minutes later, they'll pop back up and you're like, where did you go? <laughs> so it could take a long time. Yeah. You know? And some of them were pretty honorary to you. They would, uh, I think they knew I wanted to go home. And so they'd swoop down. And the protocol was that I had to get four mice into them without them le leaving my site. And then that meant that they didn't have any young in their nest, right? So I would give them a mouse. They'd swoop down, grab it, sit on a branch 10 feet from my head. And they'd put that mouse in their mouth and chomp off his head and then take it out and stare at me. <laughs> And then put it back in their mouth and look at me and then take it back out. And they do this for like 20 minutes. And you're like, oh, I want to go home. I have three more mouths. I'm going to feed you, dude. Just eat the thing or yeah. do something. So, uh, and that's how we determine if they were breeding or not and yeah. where their young was. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Hoot, hoot. Yeah, that's really cool. Where It sounds like you've been able to do a, a lot of 
a lot of cool projects kind of over a wide variety of uh, mm-hmm. environments and different animals and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i was really fortunate in college too um since i was in the fisheries program um at humboldt uh, i volunteered for every uh, like project they had any fisheries related stuff i volunteered so if they needed to go electrofish uh looking for coho or steelhead i was there uh, i worked on the research boat the coral sea and we would go way offshore and do you know uh, monitoring of either fisheries or uh, you know the ocean chemicals or whatever but uh, it's just a wide variety of uh, experiences available uh, so super fun thank you so I mean, you, you've kind of talked about your school background and kind of your background, but what was like your main drive to become a fish biologist and then really just like work on all these projects, you know? Uh, I think, well, I've had a love really for fish since high school. Um, I always found them interesting. And to be brutally honest, like my favorite fish are rockfish. Um, I love rockfish. Um, I would dedicate a career to rockfish, but I think there's only four jobs studying rockfish and those people will never give up those jobs. So, um, you know, salmon, uh, is really important. It's an iconic species in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they're imperiled in a lot of areas and there's a lot more jobs there. So, um, that kind of drew me into salmon. And then, um, I really like digging into a problem. So, um, you know, like for, for salmon say here in this basin well we've been doing a lot of things to try and bring back our salmon say in the lake washington basin but the needle for the recovery is is not really moving and it's not moving in the right direction it's kind of moving in the the wrong direction and so bringing in you know working with partners um and bringing in new ideas and looking at new avenues that haven't really been explored and finding potential that, um, you know, you could actually really make a difference. You could really drastically improve our numbers in a meaningful way. Um, you know, that, that gets my, just my juices flowing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What can you, for like people that don't know, uh, what a kokanee is, can you kind of describe what a kokanee is? Sure. Um, kokanee are sockeye salmon, Anker and Kisnerka. Um, they are the non-anadromous form, so they do not go to the ocean. So in the uh, uh, Lake Sammamish Basin, they spend, you know, they're born in the creeks, they live their entire life in the lake, and then they go back to the creeks and spawn. Um, this is an adaptation that probably happened eons ago uh, when they got trapped. Um, and and Kokney and the Lake Washington Basin from all the records we could find were the most abundant Pacific salmon um, all the way back to the late 1800s wow. um, in, in the basin before we replumbed everything. So that, that kind of changed things. Yeah. So at one time, did they think that the Kokanee were like going out to this, the ocean or, or, like at the whole time they've just lived in the lake. Uh, so the theory, at least that we we're pitching around is uh, when the plumbing was, uh, you know, not modified, 
uh, Lake Washington used to exit basically through the Boeing plant. Uh, it went through the Black and Duwamish rivers and out to the Sound. Uh, the Cedar was never a tributary of Lake Washington. Uh, that's been moved. And so um, uh, we think at some point that uh, sockeye salmon made it into the system, probably, you know, 100, you know, who knows when, forever ago, um, got into the lake and um, sockeye are really kind of, um, they're lake driven fish. So if you look at their, their life history, um, there's usually a lake involved, at least one. Uh, it's usually a river to a lake, and then they spawn in the river above, or do they do some shoreline spawning, but usually a lake. Um, and so they probably snuck in. Um, there were the Boeing plant was was a real marshy area, and it would swell up, and it was probably a temporal barrier. So um, you know, Chinook or Coho may have snuck in there every once in a while, but probably not very often if they ever did. And so um, really it was a, a kokanee and cutthroat lake and uh, pea mouth, lots of pea mouth. Yeah. They're still in there. Yeah. And yeah. historically in the, in the lake system here, we had three, three runs. So there was an early run that predominantly spawned in uh, Isquat Creek. And then there was a middle run that uh, spawned in the tributaries of Lake Washington and the Sammamish River. And uh, there was a late run, and those spawned in the uh, tributaries other than Isquat Creek in Lake Sammamish tributaries there. Oh, cool. That's crazy. And so this was all, I guess you can't say necessarily 100% natural because things like rivers and stuff were changed, but um, these fish were never brought in by a person then, is that correct? Nope, not brought in by a person, gotten here naturally, um, persisted. And they were, uh, you know, historically, they were just such an important cultural resource for and, and food resource for native peoples, mm -hmm. provided reliable protein and, and uh, you know, fats uh, in times where it may be harder to find other foods. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, oral history from the native peoples of coming to these, these lakes to you know, persists on those fish, and they were an important um, food resource too for the European expansion when it came across. That's awesome. That's crazy. They're almost like part of the Pacific Northwest DNA in some way. They are. I mean, salmon really are in general, uh, but for the system, if you looked at uh, like the Snoqualmie tribe specifically, um, I've even heard a quote from. Uh, uh, their chief, uh, Andy Day of Los Angeles, when he was alive, that uh, we are kokanee salmon. And they have really, you know, it's part of their identity. Uh, it's part of their culture. And uh, they, it's, it's in their symbology, too. So this was really important. Yeah. That's very, very powerful when you, when you hear things like that from people that have lived here for, uh, for a super long time. I'm immemorial. <laughs> exactly. Tell us um, a little bit, I guess, about um, about the kokanee in the in the basin and um, what your work is, and maybe some challenges that um, the kokanee face that you're trying to address. Sure. So, uh, kokanee 
are historically the most abundant Pacific salmon in the entire basin. And that is Lake Washington, the Sammamish River, and Lake Sammamish. Uh, historically, there was three runs. There was an early run that went up Isquot Creek. There was a middle run that went up tributaries of Lake Washington and the Sammamish River. And there was a late run uh, that used the small tributaries of Lake Sammamish. Uh, the early one, early run was uh, extirpated uh, through the hatchery. And the last time we saw a member of that run was in the early 2000s. The middle run had, we think, or we at least had thought that it may have hybridized with some other cochineae that were being put in the system, uh, Lake Wacom, or potentially hybridizing with uh, Baker Lake Sockeye. Mm -hmm. uh, so more recent discoveries have, have indicated this, this population may not be gone, um, but there's more to come on that. Yeah. And then the, what we thought was the only remaining of uh, native kokanee salmon, this is one of uh, two populations that are native to this area, was the late run. And they primarily used three streams, Lewis Creek, Laughing Jacobs Creek, and Ebright Creek. Yeah, those are our index streams. There was another of other small streams that they utilized as well. Uh, if you're not aware, kokanee are the landlocked version of sockeye salmon. Um, exactly the same, look the same, much smaller fish though. Yeah. Um, and historically they were uh, uh, traditional uh, cultural food source mm -hmm. the native peoples and the European settlers as they moved uh, over here. And so they have been faced with a, a host of problems, uh, not only direct uh, extirpation, like the early run, but uh, fisheries managers historically have moved fish all around the country. And so they took all the fish that we love on the West Coast and moved them East, and all the fish that we loved on the East Coast, they brought them West. <laughs> And that's how we got um, uh, stripers and shad and say the San Francisco Delta. Uh, that's how we got large and smallmouth bass, whole host of sunfish, um, yellow perch. These are all not native here. And they've been introduced into the system as well. So they face that, that threat from direct predation. Um, they also... Uh, are very sensitive to temperature and disease. So uh, urbanization can lead to increased temperatures. Climate change can increase temperatures. That's whole re really hard on uh, uh, cold water fishes. There's also parasites and disease. And so historically uh, there's a disease called IHN that uh, was pretty effective at killing some salmonids when water was colder. That's becoming less of an issue, but there are other uh, animal parasites. Uh, uh, so there's some that specifically I'm looking at, they're called mixozoans. These are uh, actually highly modified cnidarians or freshwater jellyfish. They have an intermediate host and uh, their cyst uh, that gets broadcast in the water column, issues with the bladder, with the kidneys, with the liver, and has been the source of some pretty extreme mortality in other areas like the Klamath River down in uh, California, 
Fraser River, uh, a whole host of other ones too. Um, but this is a, we knew that some of them were here. We didn't know kind of where they were and we're drilling into that some more. And we discovered one that we really didn't want to see. It's called the Tetracapsoides virus Hemone, and it causes proliferative kidney disease. And uh, we did detect that in Lake Sammamish in Kokanee uh, two years ago. And there's been some recent press on uh, T. Biro, some pretty significant fish kills, uh, whitefish. Uh, I believe that was in Montana. Oh wow! So, so yeah, we have we have some issues here, and so we're trying to figure out, you know, what that is. And, yeah. Um, and there's also uh, my new favorite topic to beat like a dead horse, and that is uh, aquatic weeds. So uh, the entire littoral zone, so it's the entire lakeshore of Lake Sammamish, all the way down the Sammamish River and all the way through um, Lake Washington is occupied by aquatic weeds. And the two primary culprits are uh, uh, Eurasian water milfoil, which came in, I believe in the seventies. And then uh, uh, Brazilian Elodia. So it's an aquarium plant. It's been banned from the trade now, uh, but it spreads by fragmentation. So if you cut it or it gets broken off or whatever, and that one inch piece settles somewhere, it'll start popping out roots. Oh, that's and it, yeah. And it occupies basically from about a half a foot in depth and to, in Lake Sammamish specifically, it goes out to about 18 feet in depth. And <laughs> So you have this band around the entire shoreline of Lake Sammamish, and it creates this really intricate habitat. It's got all these little holes in it. There's a false uh, bottom that gets formed by the canopy. Um, and then if you were to dive into it, it opens up. So you just have like the little stems um, and it's utilized by these non-native game fish. It's perfect for them. It's really perfect. It, it is providing essential habitat for them to spawn, for them to young, for them to forage, and for them to predate on juvenile salmon. Yeah. And so uh, there has been an effort recently to try and control predation because it's been identified as a pretty significant source of loss for a salmon, especially Chinook and Coho, because Chinook follow the shoreline on their migration out. We forced them to go through a lake, which is not common in their life history. And yeah. so when they leave Isquah Hatchery and go down to um, the mouth of Isquah, they go left or right and follow the shoreline all the way around, all the way through that littoral band where yeah. all those weeds are and all those game fish are just sitting there waiting to pick them off. And they do. They get picked off by everything. My fisheries professors when I was in college that everything loves eating baby salmon and they sure do. It's a great nutrient source for them. Yeah. Um, Crazy. Yeah. So it's, it's a tremendously large problem. Um, if you look at the noxious weed people's websites, uh, normally the landowners are responsible to control this weed and the lake shore next to them with exception of Lake Sammamish, the Sammamish river and Lake Washington because it's been deemed as too big of a problem to deal with. Wow. So, 
I disagree. Yeah. I disagree on that. And I'm looking at it from a salmon lens, but these weeds negatively impact water quality, lake ecology, they impact uh, recreation and boating usage. Um, they even uh, lower property values. They found that like properties that have this weed in front of them sell for 10% less than you would if you cleared those weeds out. Yeah. And I think um, that we'll be able to show that, you know, if we piece all these things together, uh, all these interests that have potential funding sources, we may actually be able to do something significant. And so uh, that's something that is really uh, gets my fisheries juices flowing, <laughs> you know, finding a problem. It seems obvious, but nobody wants to take it on because it seems too big, but it's important. Projects like this and the mix of zones that I mentioned earlier may actually move the salmon recovery needle in a meaningful, positive direction. And that just, that gets my juices flowing. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. And a, a good win for all salmon, kokanee, I mean, anything in the basin. You know, I forget to say that more is that, um, you know, I'm, I was originally hired as a uh, kokanee recovery project manager, but kokanee don't just use weeds. They don't just get affected by these things. It affects all the fishes. Yeah. And so the restoration work that we're all doing to um, reconnect habitat, improve stream habitat, improving water quality, that lifts all boats. And yeah. so we should look at it in that lens, not, um, you know, discriminate against certain species. And I say that because um, kokanee are not listed as endangered. Um, they weren't. And so they don't qualify for the recovery funds that are directed towards species like Chinook. Chinook are endangered. They get a lot of money directed at them. Yeah. But I would argue that um, you know, a lot of the projects that we're doing benefit all of them. And I think right now the the mindset and some of the recovery managers is starting to change a little bit um, and realize that, you know, this is, this is really going to help, or this could really answer some questions that uh, we need to know if we're going to try and actually recover the species. Yeah. And they're, it's pretty crazy to hear that they're not listed as endangered because it has some uh historical meaning behind it you know like you're saying like settlers and uh and tribes once lived off this you know these red little red fish so um but they're just like kind of put on the back burner i mean and that's what you explained to us earlier too mm -hmm. about what happened at the hatchery with them you know how they just drained them and let them yeah. die so they're not as economically viable or valuable. Yeah. Um, and so they aren't looked at as highly, but, um, and I forget if I had mentioned before why or how they didn't get listed. There was two petitions to list these fish, uh, but the listing agency for non-anadromous fish is the U S fish and wildlife service. It's not NOAA. NOAA is a little more liberal with their listings. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is very tight. And so they went through their process and determined that kokanee or kokanee, and there's other populations of kokanee elsewhere. So it didn't necessarily warrant uh, listing. And that, it's a kind of a double-edged sword 
uh, it doesn't provide or allow access to some of the ESA recovery uh, funding, but it allows us to do things with these fish that you can never do with Chinook that are listed. Um, for example, we wholly changed our supplementation program in one year. Wow. That's typically a decade long process. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we will actually have some answers from that change coming up and we're really excited about it. You know? That's great. Yeah. So when you're in the office, what, what do you, what do you do every day? How are you? I mean, your time, the way you've explained it to me is the time of year kind of plays into the, how your day to day is going to go. Um, talk about like what it is like right now. Uh, right now is not as much fun uh, because I'm not in the field as much as I'd like to be. Mm -hmm. My day-to-day -day changes daily. So, um, you know, I don't come into the office and then sit at my computer for, you know, eight hours, check out and go home. Um, right now I've been working on finalizing some reports uh, for projects that I've completed, one on aquatic weeds, um, uh, another one on the remote stream incubator project, uh, making sure that we get paid so that I can keep doing this work. Um, and then I actually had a meeting with our new uh, King County Council member uh, today, uh, Council Member uh, Sarah Perry, and introduce her to TU, what we're doing in the watershed, and um, you know how she can connect with us or support our efforts. Cool. Tomorrow, I'm going to take the day off and go fishing on the Skycomish. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice. So it, it really changes by season. Uh, summertime can be uh, more busy with uh, a lot of outreach and education events, uh, getting ready for the, uh, you know, winter spawning season, supplementation program, uh, and lining up future work. So I'm grant funded, um, which if you've never been grant funded, it's a little more difficult than, you know, uh, being hired by Amazon, you just show up and do your job, which is valuable too. But uh, I seek grants. I have to make a proposal on what I want to do with a budget. And a lot of these grant processes, I won't know if my proposal was accepted for six to nine months, maybe a year. And wow. once it's accepted, it may be another three to six months before I can ever start work. So I'm trying to plan, you know, a year and a half, two years out on, you know, lining up work to keep me uh, doing this awesome job. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, uh, and you, you, people wonder why it takes so long to do any work in fisheries or anything, you know, because it's like, they're like, well, I want, you know, they see a problem. They're like, why don't we have solutions for this now? Right. Mm -hmm. And you just explain why, why well, it, it can be really different too. Like uh, the aquatic weed project that I was talking about, uh, yeah. my, my counterparts and I at King County have been talking about aquatic weeds for probably three or four years. Like, Oh, we really think this is an issue. You know, we think it's, you know, causing mortality. It's impacting water quality, but we couldn't find uh, something to fund a study for us to actually explore this question. Uh, until we got word uh, that uh, Council Member Claudia Balducci from King County uh, was looking to do a project 
uh, to support Kokanee in Lake Sammamish. And she had about $50,000. And so she was, you know, soliciting proposal ideas. And we put forth a couple ideas. She selected the weed project. And we were funded, you know, two months later. We had a contract. I had contractors rolling, pulling weeds. and an agreement with King County to have their ecologist help me uh, do some scuba surveying. And we knocked it out that year. So it can be very fast, but uh, that's probably a benefit for working with Trout Unlimited is we can be nimble where other organizations are kind of locked into their budgeting planning process and can't shift as fast as we can. Yeah. Crazy. Um, anything else you want to add in your day to day? Or you think you covered it pretty well? I think another one that, uh, the big part of what I do is interacting with people. So uh, going and talking to people, not just, you know, Hey, how are you doing and building relationships, but, you know, really putting out information that's important about things that are happening here, building those relationships with uh, jurisdictions or counties so that we're trusted. They know we're going to do good work. We're not fly by night. You know, we're here for the long haul. Um, and I think that's, it's really something that I enjoy in this job. Um, you know, being the go-to person, building those relationships and, uh, you know, building the program really. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and supporting my good friend Keaton <laughs> river cleanups and, <laughs> and Salmon in the classroom. <laughs> oh yeah, that that too. Dave, I give Dave a call or an email like out of the blue every day, and he's pretty quick at responding back to me. So I appreciate that, Dave. Mm. You help me get through a lot of my projects too, which I it means the world to me. So, well, I'll keep Adam on your plate there, pal. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, let's talk about the new outreach coordinator. Okay. Um, so I should talk about, uh, how that started. Um, the Sammamish Basin was identified as a urban wildlife refuge partnership by the U S fish and wildlife service in 2013. Um, this was right after they denied our petition for Kokanee listing. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it actually brought some resources to the area. Um, but they had to figure out what they wanted to do with that. It's a designation. You got to figure out, you know, what's our mission. And they ended up settling on uh, working on connecting the people within the watershed with the watershed and people outside of the watershed with the watershed and build basically conservation constituency uh, by making that connection and including outreach and education and inclusion to the diverse groups around the watershed. So we have a pretty diverse community, Bellevue, uh, the city of Bellevue, uh, which is in the, uh, one of the four jurisdictions of Lake Sammamish is a minority majority city and they have 92 spoken languages. And a lot of these people are, are new immigrants from foreign countries and haven't been exposed to you know, conservation messages or even given kind of a pathway to connect with nature 
uh, like many of us who have lived here our, our whole lives. And so uh, really it was supposed to be that bridge. Um, and so we, uh, they continued on and kind of the effort kind of sputtered uh, right before the pandemic. And they tapped us um, to kind of shepherd it forward. And we went through a process of fundraising because what we thought is we need a coordinator. We need somebody who can help organize the partners, who can leverage all the partners together and amplify our message and to be able to reach out to these community-based organizations outside the watershed and bring them in, make them included and figure out how to bridge that gap because um, there's been some efforts to do that, but largely unsuccessful. I'm certainly not the master of it. And I'm so glad that uh, we were able to you know, reach our fundraising goal, which took three years through a pandemic, which was excruciating. Um, but we were able to hire uh, our UWRP coordinator, Alex. And Alex, uh, she was a coordinator down in Oregon. And um, she was a shining star through her interviews. And we hired her in uh, April. And she has just taken off. She's really uh, working to advance the goals of the UWRP. She's helping kind of advance the DEI goals or diversity, equity, inclusion goals of Trout Unlimited. And she's helping kind of the, uh, the existing partners who um, haven't always worked well together, work well together. So she's doing a great job on that. That's awesome. And so uh, we're gonna be hosting some events here uh, this summer. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time at the Lake Sammamish State Park and after big holiday events, um, the park is trashed. Oh, we yeah. have a lot of people in there. Um, and so last July 4th, I was cruising around the lake on my boat, went by the mouth of Isquah Creek. And uh, actually, this was the fifth. And I saw that, like, people left their garbage can or, like, you know, beer cans and floaties and chairs and everything else, like just piled up on the beach just everywhere. Yeah. And there were some other people there and I pulled in, I was like, this is disgusting. You know? So I pulled in, started throwing stuff in my boat and the people on the beach were astonished. They were like, are you, you going to take all this garbage? I was like, yeah, if you can help me, just throw it, throw it in my boat. I'll get rid of it. It's fine. I just don't want to see the Creek or, you know, park like this. And in 15 minutes, we cleared off the whole beach. Wow. And I was able to get rid of the garbage at the park. And I was like, well, that wasn't that hard. You know, just took some organization. And so uh, we're going to be hosting a cleanup event on July 5th at the state park. Uh, you know, just make it look good again. They don't have a lot of staff, so it takes them a long time. And they can't get out to the more remote areas. Yeah. It won't, it won't take a lot of time. It'll take some people. But, you know, connecting people, giving them some ownership of the park, uh, this is our place, you know, I think that goes a long ways, long yeah. ways to connect people. Absolutely. That's a good mission, too. And how could, if someone wanted to get involved in that, how could they, is there like a link or an event link somewhere that they could join and sign up? Yeah, I can uh, give you a link. Uh, Alex just started promoting it on Facebook and Instagram there. Um sure. But it's on uh, July 5th, and I believe it's like 9 to 11.30, and then we'll be probably cooking some hot dogs and 
you know, give them out to folks with some drinks and, uh, you know, we're going to try and do that. And then, uh, right after Labor Day in September, the day after Labor Day, we're going to do another one. Sweet. And just keep that party looking nice, you know? Absolutely. So I guess, I mean, when we had a great, great conversation, learn more about the Kokanee and, and about their history in the basin and, and how they're affected by, uh, by us as humans, by raising temperatures, parasites, diseases. Why should we care about these fish? What is their importance um, in the basin that uh, should make us want to maybe get involved or to learn more or just work with somebody to try to prolong the in the northwest well i think i'd first start out to say that they're part of the uh, culture and heritage and quality of life of this region uh, salmon in general are iconic they are a symbol of this place and uh, uh, they're important to a lot of people for that uh, but in the lake sammamish region i like to look at them as kind of a uh, mascot of lake health and if they're doing well uh, then we're doing well as as managers of our environment if they're not doing well that tells me that something's wrong and we could do better as managers and they thrive in cold clean water that's not polluted with uh, you know chemicals or uh, you know things that would make us sick uh, so you, you may not care, or I guess we can be explicit. You may not give a shit about kokanee, but uh, they do represent other things and other values that people uh, care about. And uh, knowing that you can bring your kids to Lake Sammamish State Park and not have to worry that there's fecal coliform in the you know beach area and your kids are going to get sick, it should be important to you as a parent, if you're a parent, um, you know, it's, uh, it's important to take care of the places you live in, you recreate in. And, uh, as my dad always taught me, you know, you always leave a place cleaner than when you found it. Always pack out that garbage. Um, always make it better. Yeah. <clears throat> so with that being said, how do you think, and every day, maybe they're not fishermen, maybe just community members, maybe we are fishermen. How could we get more involved if we don't, you know, if we don't have that fisheries degree or we're just that average Joe? Like, how can I get more involved in helping the kokanee or helping the trout or anything that needs help? How can, how can I get involved in that? I feel like you're pretty involved already, Keaton. But, not, uh, <laughs> not me, not me personally. Oh. I, I've reached my limits, but oh. how can other people get involved? Uh, I guess there's different levels, uh, and it probably depends on a multitude of things. Probably the easiest thing uh, is to, you know, contribute to organizations like Trout Unlimited or another one of the great partners working here. Um, this doesn't happen for free. It certainly doesn't, and so um, you know, and that's definitely needed in this area, especially with the challenges of finding funding for Kokanee. Uh, the other one is, is just supporting um, events like, uh, you know, planting. 
uh, tree planting in riparian areas. It's an easy one to bring your family to. Uh, helping with uh, removing non-native uh, invasive species like blackberry and things like that. Um, volunteering uh, Trout Unlimited, the Three Rivers chapter is starting to engage in trapping uh, African clawed frogs. So this is an, a non-native species. It's a fully aquatic frog, so it doesn't come up and really rib it. And uh, it eats everything, including uh, baby fish. And we found it in some uh, stormwater ponds. So the chapter is jumping on that. Uh, they're taking volunteers, uh, training them up, and we're starting to trap uh, those fish. Um, if you want to be more involved, uh, advocacy is a great way. So, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of times if you join national campaigns, you're just kind of yelling at the wall. But if you go to your local city council member, like meeting, and provide oral comment about something that's important to you, say salmon recovery or, you know, uh, stream cleanup or whatever, um, you represent a portion of their constituency and the people that put them in office there and they will listen. Uh, we have had a lot of great traction and support from our uh, local jurisdictions, uh, the county, um, just by people speaking up and advocating for it, telling them it's important. Um, Another one is just uh, bring your kids out, bring your kids out in nature and connect them, turn off the screens, go outside, come to Lake Sammamish State Park. It's an amazing park, uh, 500 acre park, great lake access streams, and just be in nature. I think that provides a great connection too. And come bug me. I'm very available. I'll come talk your ear off. You know, I just want to kind of add a comment onto the end of this is I was just, uh, you know, four or five years ago, I was just an average Joe, right. That just got into fly fishing and kind of realized that there was a problem around our fisheries. And, you know, I was just thinking like, how could I be more involved? And, you know, behold, there was a TU chapter near me and I attended a meeting and I went just to, you know, just to see what it was about. And four years later, this is going to be, this year will be my fourth Cedar River cleanup. We're putting Cedar River signage up for fisheries. Um, and that's just me. Like I, I do this all on the side. I do it because I care about these places. And um, so if I can do it, anyone can do it. And if you ever have questions, you know, you can feel free to message us on our podcast and I can show you how to get involved via our chapter or another chapter near you. Um, but I, I think we all can agree that it's a very important thing to do, especially if you love the resource, you got to also take care of the resource. Couldn't agree more. And uh, your efforts to clean up the cedar uh, are amazing. I mean, it's there's a lot of garbage out there and <laughs> these are important streams. And that's uh, incredibly disappointing that people are so uh, negligent or lazy. Um, to just toss their garbage somewhere. Uh, but, yeah. you know, the last thing I want to do when I'm recreating is see a shopping cart in the river. <laughs> yeah, or tires or, I mean, car bumpers, I mean, or crowbars or the amount of stuff you find is insane. And the moral of the story is if you go out, like Dave said, leave it better than you saw it, you know, or found it. So, well, um, you know, that's 
that's kind of what we had to talk about. I think that it was a very good conversation. Was there anything else that you felt like you wanted to add? Um, I guess I would, I would suggest people want to stay more in tuned. You can come to uh, my website, uh, lakesammamishkokney.com. Um, and we are pushing forward with uh, what's called the Urban Wildlife Refuge Partnership. So that's uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife designated this watershed as a Urban Wildlife Refuge Partnership. And uh, we are shepherding it forward. And basically the goal of that is to connect uh, people within the watershed and outside the watershed with this watershed. Uh, connect them with the great groups that are doing good work here and providing them opportunities or access to opportunities to participate, uh, keep them informed and uh, um, really kind of synergize what we're doing here. And uh, we have a social media account, Little Red Fish Forever. Um, it's on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, there's a lot of postings, but that's going to start uh, really getting more dynamic with our, our new capacity brought in with our new coordinator. So uh, hopefully I'll have more updates later on that. Um, but it's a, it's a great opportunity to bring new people into what we do. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll link that down in the show notes and on our website. So people that are, are interested can click right on that link and go check it out. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Do you want to roll into it, Kyle, or me? Yeah. So, like, like Keaton said, Dave, we appreciate the conversation that we've had with you, and um, we're, we're glad that we could help provide that ad advocacy for um, for your work and for the Kokanee in the Basin and how we might try to get more people involved or at least get them thinking, considering these, these fish species and, again, your work um, a little bit more. Um, and yeah, we just had a great conversation, but at the end of every podcast, we do have a rapid fire round or some questions so that we can get, a, know, a, get to know you a little bit more, um, outside of the, the seriousness of, of, uh, fish conservation. So, uh, we're going to roll into, uh, some last few questions here for you. Uh, so what is, your, what is your favorite thing to fish with? Yeah, that's a rough one because uh, I've never caught a kokanee, to be honest. Really? Never. Uh, other than like through the supplementation program, uh, I haven't put a lot of time into it because, uh, you know, I work a lot on the lake where you can't fish them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's one of my goals actually this year is to catch a kokanee. What, uh, what is your favorite fish? I guess you, you yeah. My favorite. Oh, my favorite fish is rockfish by far. They are uh, just amazing fish, uh, very diverse, a lot of color morphs, just rocking attitudes. I mean, just spikes all over them. Um, yeah. yeah, they just just get my heart. I, I would love to work with them, but uh, there's not a whole lot of opportunities to do that. So I'll just love them forever and fish for them. That's awesome. Where... Uh, what is a dream destination fishery for you? Mm. Um, probably my dream is to go to uh, Rarotonga. Uh, Rarotonga is north of Fiji. And 
I have some college friends that live there and do shark research. Oh, cool. uh, but they have dogfish tuna and all kinds of species I've never had any access to. Um, and uh, definitely a bucket list trip for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. That's the, that's the first time we've heard that one. That's a, it's good to get a, get a mix up in dream destinations. That's really cool. Oh man. I probably shouldn't have said nothing. <laughs> it's going to be littered with people. Uh, now you're hot spotting on the young guys podcast. All, all 50 listeners are going to figure it out. Beware a hundred people spike. <laughs> well, if you can make the 14 hour flight, I guess you made it. So yeah, that's true. So I'll go ahead, you're headed ahead. You're you're headed out the door. You're going to do an outdoorsy thing. Uh, what's your favorite meal and drink to have with you? Tasty Bev? Taste, or... A tasty Bev and a nice snack. Like, hey, Dave's headed out to the sound to go coho fishing. What is he eating and drinking on? Oh, I probably, uh, I definitely have beef jerky. And, uh, I'm probably rocking a white claw for sure. Nice flavor. True. I like the lime for sure. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of my vodka sodas I drink. <laughs> uh, you got your you got your white claws and you got your jerky, and mm-hmm. you're in your back seat. But what are you mm-hmm. listening to now while you're driving to the sound? Mm, probably the joe rogan podcast (laughs) the jre yeah that's great all right you're headed out out the door to do an outdoorsy thing what's the first thing that you're gonna grab that you do not want to forget probably my license and uh keys (laughs) (laughs) keys <laughs> <laughs> very important stuff right there yeah yeah they're probably my 45 i usually have that on me somewhere yeah also very important in an urban setting well in all settings let's be honest mm-hmm. yeah i mean uh, that, that made me think about when you were guiding in alaska did you uh did you carry um, some kind of sidearm or some kind of protection when you were when you were guiding or, or just recreating uh i had my uh 45 but uh, you know a lot of times i mean if something was going to come after you that 45 wasn't going to do anything i mean brown bears are huge um and if they were close enough for me to shoot them they would get me so uh <laughs> a lot of times uh uh you know, it, it had some close calls with bears, but a lot of times they're bluff charges. You know, they want to roar at you and try to Im- intimidate you. But uh, we found that, you know, you kind of stand your ground, talk to it, and uh, they'll they'll back off. So I always loved the, <laughs> uh, the guys that brought up like the hand cannons, you know, and uh, just the most god-awful huge pistols you've ever seen. And we always joked with them. It's like, you might want to take off that front sight. All right, why? Like, well, when the bear grabs that from you and shoves it up your ass, it's going to come out a lot easier with that <laughs> that sight on there. Uh, oh man, that's awesome. 
That is too good. That is too good. Dog, that's great. I got I gotta remember that for clients this year. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell them that's why I carry my nine millimeter on the river. Oh my god. You've seen those giant hand cannons, right? Like oh yeah. The they're usually like, you know, the the uh magazines like this big for the, the revolver. It's just like how do you even carry that thing around? It reminded me, this might be too old for you, but uh the Batman movie with the Joker and he pulls out his pistol and he's like pulling it out and pulling it out, pulling it out. It's oh, like yeah. a three foot barrel pistol. Unwieldy for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what is something you wish you knew when you first started fishing? I wish I knew to uh, I was kind of a gear snob when I first started and I found through my life and I've broken a lot of stuff that uh, some of the cheaper stuff works, you know, and it's a great place to start. Uh, especially if you're fishing like something like rockfish in the sound or not the sound, you can't do it here, but out in the ocean, those things rust to shit all the time. And the last thing you want to do is have some like, you know, 300, $400 reel rust in your hands uh, when you can buy something that'll do just as well for 50 bucks. So I blew a lot of money on shit. And I also learned not to buy really expensive lures for rockfish. Cause honestly, they don't give two shits. <laughs> um, we caught lingcod. We'd go to like the dollar store and get uh, crescent wrenches and attach hooks to them with like, you know, uh, keychain circles. And we'd get lingcod, giant lingcod on a crescent wrench. They didn't care. It was bright, shiny, and made noise. So that is cool. That's insane. One of the best times I ever had is me and my buddy uh, went to the tackle shop and we're like, oh, we're going to buy some lures. And he bought this one pound, like painted lead jig. I think it was like 25 bucks. Right. And we get out, we go directly to where we're going to go fish. And first drop, he hits the bottom. It snags and breaks off. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> I was just rolling. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, it was amazing. You better just throw 20 bucks in the water and walk away. Yeah. He also got me back, though, because uh, I had this uh, tackle box full of, like, uh, lead heads. Uh, just packed full of, like, one ounce, two ounce, three ounce uh, lead heads for uh, rockfish. And I had put it on kind of the beam side of his boat and we got hit by uh, a small wave and that whole box it was probably a hundred dollars worth of lead went and just right right to the bottom it's gone <laughs> so. that sucks that's expensive mm -hmm. all right what advice would you give to new people trying to become a fish biologist hmm um well you're probably going to need to go to school for one uh you don't have to go to princeton to do that and i would get as much practical experience as you can uh like i said when i was in college i volunteered for every you know master's thesis that needed volunteers doing fisheries work for every project that the school was involved in and i got hands-on experience 
with all kinds of different uh, fishery sampling uh, gear and methods. And when I entered the job force, um, I was valued because I had practical experience. It wasn't just book learning. This is something you have to like do. Um, so I think it's important, but I also think uh, you have to realize that uh, there's a lot of seasonal jobs in fisheries and transitioning from a seasonal field tech into more permanent jobs is a big step. So you have to really want to do that. Uh, a lot of people aren't able to make that transition and they, you know, end up doing something else because the, the seasonal techs don't get paid a ton. They really don't, even though the work they do is really important. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, why should people care about fish conservation? Hmm. Cause it's cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, so you can be more cool. Uh, that's the only reason I did it. Honestly. I saw Dave and I was like, man, I got to be like that guy. Mm -hmm. uh, well, fish conservation is important. Uh, I think it relates back to what we talked about earlier is, uh, yeah. you know, it's not always about just the fish. Fish are just a piece of it. Um, but the qualities that make the fish, you know, flourish uh, contribute to the quality of life we all get to enjoy. Um, and so it's important to preserve those. And um, it's a lot easier to try and keep something good when it's good than trying to put that genie back in the bottle after it's already, you know, been through the ringer. So yeah. uh, if we can slow or stop the degradation of stuff um, across all landscapes, um, it's much easier to keep going. That's great advice. It'll be way more expensive to fix later. For sure. Yeah. Well, all right. So, you know, that's very well said, Dave. I think it, you know, when it's gone, it's harder to get back than when you already have it. So, mm -hmm. all right. So we like to end the podcast with your favorite uh, fishing moment, outdoor moment, or your maybe back in your guiding days, your favorite guide story. Um, it can be the good, the bad, the ugly. We're we're here for it all. Hmm. Well, this is a story I like to embarrass my good friend Mike Cole with. Is uh, we were we were fishing out of uh, Humboldt, and uh, it was just an amazing day. Uh, we were getting all kinds of fish. Uh, getting halibut and rockfish and lingcod and then we decided to finish up with salmon so like the boat i have now which i bought from him was probably uh you know it's pretty loaded with fish and uh um, i hooked into a pretty big salmon and uh i fought it all the way to the boat it was much larger than uh anything we had caught during that day and it was probably good 35 plus pounds big old monster and i look at him I, and it's right near the boat and i go don't fuck this up and he went to net it and that fish you know we had a deep kind of a deep mesh net yeah. and that fish went from one side at the top all the way to the bottom all the way to the other side 
And when he netted it, the second hook hooked the net and it flexed the other way and popped right off. <laughs> and so uh, I almost had my personal best uh, Chinook ever. But thanks to Mike Cole, I will never have that. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, but man. I love him. <laughs> that's all. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. We appreciate you taking the time and hopping on today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. And uh, I'm happy to come back and share more about uh, Kokney or uh, other things that I deem important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, we'll definitely get you back on. We, we do like to talk to, um to biologists have we have we brought on any biologists before in the past keaton uh we had um uh leaf yeah we had we had leaf on um yeah. but yeah it'd be definitely something we want to do in the future is get more more people on the podcast that are doing that like hands-on conservation work um on the fisheries that that we all enjoy uh, i think that's a very important um, part of the puzzle that uh, we think that anglers and other people who use those ecosystems uh, should know about. So, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would add to in closing is I know, uh, or at least I feel that sometimes that anglers uh, may feel that they are not listened to uh, by fisheries managers. They're not uh, maybe feel like they're not being respected. And I've, I'm, happy to say that that's not necessarily true um, uh, one of my best assets to know what's going on in Lake Sammamish is talking to fishermen they tell me when they're starting to get some bycatch kokanee how they're looking uh, you know how many they might catch um, it's it's important because you guys are on the water you guys are seeing these things you guys have long history here and that knowledge is important so um, just kind of want to like put that out there because uh i've seen the the you know dumpster fire comments that go around in facebook and uh you know i, I try not to engage as much in that because it never goes anywhere yeah. uh, but i'm i'm very truly happy and uh grateful for the information i get from fishermen yeah that Well, sweet. Um, ready for the outro? Let's do it, kid. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Young Guides podcast. We want to thank Dave again for hopping on and talking to us about their uh, Kokanee in Lake Sammamish and this uh, beloved urban watershed um, that you know maybe some people look past. It's it's uh, there's conservation going on everywhere, um, rural and in urban environments. Um, anyone doing work out there we appreciate you uh keep working hard put your head down let's save some fish and uh we're just thankful you know from the young guides to you guys so um anything else you want to add kyle i think that's it we appreciate you guys listening to another episode and uh like i said we're going to try to get more more folks on like dave in the future to talk about our fisheries that we all love so much yeah, and just one little while we're on the outro, uh, make sure to check out Northern Knits, uh, Heather's Choice, 
um, Alaska Rodco and Lucky Bug Lures. They're having some good stuff going on. Uh, every once in a while, there's some sales popping up. Um, they're, they do great stuff. They're selling some ama- amazing gear to make your fishing experience better um, it, via clothing or uh, lures or the rod you fish with or the food you eat. So uh, I think we cover a lot of bases with the people who uh, are part of also part of this podcast. So, uh, so much love to them as well. So make sure to go check them out. And um, that being said, we just want to thank you and uh, thanks for taking the time to listen. And we see your Apple reviews. Keep giving us reviews. Let us know how we're doing, good or bad. Uh, It makes us uh, this podcast a lot better. So uh, we appreciate you. And uh, with that being said, thanks for listening to another episode of the Young Guides podcast. We'll catch you on the next one.